0: with me in John chapter 1, verses 4 to 13. John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, in this room this morning, largely are gathered a people who've been born, not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, the will of man, but of God. And we thank you and praise you. And that's why we gather this morning, to celebrate your grace in saving us. Lord, we recognize that one of the key means of sanctification is beholding the God who saved us. Give us eyes to behold you today by your Spirit in the person of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This past Wednesday, December the 11th, was the 100th anniversary of the dedication of the Bo Monument in my hometown, you laugh, of Enterprise, Alabama. It's the only memorial of an insect slash termite in the world. The boll weevil, sometimes referred to as the Mexican cotton boll weevil, first appeared in Alabama in 1915. Prior to that, it was an indigenous to to Mexico. By 1918 the farmers in South Alabama were losing in entire cotton crops. It was an economic disaster, an economic tragedy. Now, a man named H.M. Sessions... Now, if you go there today, you'll see Sessions Peanuts. H.M. Sessions saw this as an opportunity to convert to peanut farming. And he did. And in the first season... He paid off all his debts, all the farmers saw that, and in mass, the farmers converted to peanut farming, which profoundly impacted South Alabama, and in particular, the Coffee County economy. In other words, the boll weevil ended up being a blessing in disguise. And that's why the idea was proposed to, to build a, a statue in honor of the boll weevil. And it was dedicated on December the 11th, 1919. It's a memorial to an economic tragedy that actually became a legendary blessing in disguise. As a side, my aunt Pat, I don't want to brag. and come across arrogant but she won mrs Bow Weevil in 1972 <laughs> yes. yeah. right. well the memorial event that the world celebrates at christmas the incarnation of the son of god which began at conception not just when he was born began at conception testifies to a tragedy that was far greater than that of lost cotton crops because of the historical event that we know as the fall now something lurks in every side in every single one of us in adam that twists every thought diverts every desire and shapes the direction of every choice that we make. The tragedy of sin could be defined, I think, by five terms. Separation. That is, we are alienated from a holy God. Inability. That is, the moral inability to please God. The moral inability to live for His glory. Third, delusion. We're spiritually blind. And as a result, our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we can't even see it. We're excuse makers. Judgment. Judgment resides on the ungodly and hopelessness. Five terms that really define the tragedy of sin. But Christmas also signals the greatest blessing in disguise. Perhaps you could say the greatest blessing in the history of the world. The incarnation of God. Emmanuel, God with us. Now think about this. Humanity was so incredibly messed up that there was only one solution for us. And that is God himself. But what a blessing in disguise. That's what Advent is all about. And that's the essence of John's prologue in verses 1 to 18 that we've been looking at starting last week and we'll look at next week. Now last week we saw that Jesus is the eternal Word of God who addresses our spiritual ignorance. The Word of God who was and with God. Today we see that Jesus is the life and light of God for us. Whereas the Word addresses our ignorance, the life of God addresses our spiritual death, and the light of God in Christ addresses our spiritual darkness. If you look with me in verses 4 and 5, we read that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, the word life appears... 36 times in the Gospel of John. Just an interpretive principle here. When you see a term that is found that often, we recognize that is a central theme. For instance, in John 11, verse 25, after, at, the, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And not only does Jesus possess life, but he, the text tells us in John 5, 26 that life itself is found in, in Jesus. Now the creation account teaches us that all life is, comes by the Word. And we see the first life on day three where he brings, by the Word, the Lord brings to life the vegetation, the plants, and the trees. But John here is primarily referring to spiritual life. After all, consider how this gospel began. It began basically, you could say, as a new genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And so this is a a work of recreation, new life, that John is referring to here. The expression that John uses often to refer to this life in his gospel is eternal life. And you know that very famous verse from John 3:16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. And according to John... The opposite of eternal life is not death. In other words, it's not annihilation. That is a a heretical truth claim that is being bantered around today that when you die, you're no more. You're just annihilated. Well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that the opposite of eternal life is not annihilation. It's eternal condemnation. You go, how could it be eternal when when our sins are in space and time? Well, first of all, our sins are against an infinitely holy God, an infinitely righteous God. But keep this in mind as well. When you are under the judgment of God, you're not all of a sudden born again. You continue to sin for all eternity. That's just the reality. No one wants to be with God in hell. They don't like their suffering, but they don't want to be with God. They don't all of a sudden start loving God. They continue to rebel without the common grace restraints that they experience in this life. John 3:36: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's an eternal reality for those who reject the Son. And so the living word comes to us through the written word and gives us life. That's why Peter would write that we were born again not by the perishable seed, but by the imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. It is a new life that the word gives us by the spirit, in other words, new capacities, new desires. Desires for God, new desires for righteousness, new desires for holiness, new desires to learn, to read His Word, new loves for His people. Those are all the fruits of this new life. And note, this new life was the light of men. That life is the source of any light that... Even an unbeliever might have. Just perceptions of reality that any person might have. But most importantly, this is referring to the light that brings conversion. New perceptions about God. All of a sudden you recognize that this God is holy and righteous and right to judge you. New perceptions about man. Yes, we are the image of God. We have nobility and worth and dignity as a result of the fact that we are created as the image of God. But we have sinned against God. And as a result, we are guilty and corrupt before God and deserve judgment. New perceptions about Christ, His provision for our sin. New perceptions about salvation. That salvation is all of grace. It's no ladder I ascend. It is God descending to me, a sinner. That's the light that that brings that conversion. John is clearly hearkening back here to the creation account. What were the first spoken words that we read of God in Genesis 1? Let there be light. Genesis 1 verse 3. John is making clear here that this eternal Word of God, this life incarnate, the the light incarnate, is the agent who will bring about creation's second birth. This is a new creation account that John is giving us. And this, I think, notion is supported as well as he continues on with that theme in the Genesis account, of light being brought by the Word. Notice in the first part of verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Again, this is Genesis 1, verse 3. Let there be light. But the, the stress here is on the spiritual darkness brought on by our sin. We know that. For instance... Because he picks this up in Genesis, or John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And John is not inventing metaphors. Remember, John has written this gospel after Jesus has accomplished his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand. John is giving us an account of the life of Jesus with a hermeneutic. That is a, a, the, the principle or science of interpretation that was taught him by Jesus himself. John understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies and hopes of the Old Testament writers. For instance, in Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, the prophet writes, Arise and shine, for your light is come. Now, he's writing as if it's already occurred. It's called, let me give you a fancy term, it's called a prophetic perfect tense. That is, the prophets see a day where messiah would come and bring about new creation, new exodus, new life. And that promise is so sure that the prophets can write as if it's already happened. And so in Isaiah chapter 60, arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold darkness should cover the earth, shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the the Apostle Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this light, John says, is effectual. It's effectual. Notice the second part of verse 5. It says, And the darkness has not overcome it. Indeed, darkness can no more overcome the light than creation can overcome the Creator. And John, to drive home that the incarnate life, the incarnate light was the hope of the world and of Israel, the hope of Israel, Reminds us who the forward runner was. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. The life and light witnessed. Notice with me in verse 6. There was a man sent from God. Whose name was John. Again, this is not the Apostle John. This is referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. Now why would John give us this information here? Well, actually, all four gospels, at the, somewhere at the beginning of their gospel, identifies John the Baptist as the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Well, it was a central hope of the people of God that a forerunner would come. So, for instance, in Isaiah 40, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the name Lord there is Yahweh. But Isaiah says there's coming a day. Now, Isaiah 39 ends with this this prophecy of exile. Isaiah's saying, exile's coming to you, Judah, because you have apostatized. You've, you have broken the first commandment. And exile's coming, and exile did come in the form of the Babylonians who would deport the, the Jews or the, the people of Judah into their land. But Isaiah 40 begins with a promise of a new exodus, a return from exile. And Isaiah says... When the agent of that return comes, preceding him will be a forerunner, a messenger, a voice who cries in the wilderness. John is saying, John the Baptist signals that day is here in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, witness is a central theme in John. The noun witness is found 14 times in the Gospel of John, and the verb, to witness, is found 33 times. In fact, there are eight in this Gospel who bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I want us to look at those real briefly. You can just look with me in your Scriptures. Notice, first of all, here, John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus. If you'll flip over to John Chapter 5, in verse 36, notice there is someone else who bears witness to Jesus. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing. Here he says, It's his works that bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist came to bear witness of Jesus. The very works of Jesus bear witness of Jesus. And then notice in verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So, the Father has borne witness about the Son. And then notice in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And then if you look over in chapter 8, verse 18, We see someone else who bears witness. I am the one who bears witness about myself. Jesus bears witness about himself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And then if you look in chapter 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They were eyewitnesses of what he had done in raising Lazarus. Chapter 15. Verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then, verse 27, you will also bear witness. He is speaking here of the disciples. And so witness is a central theme of John. John recognizes that... This is how the message of Christ will be disseminated to the ends of the earth. Those who recognize Jesus for who he is will bear witness. Bearing witness is the fruit of recognizing Jesus for who he is. Tim Turk and I were having breakfast on Friday morning, and a waitress comes up to the table. She didn't know I was a pastor. She didn't know Tim, but she looks at me and she says, can I tell you my story? And I said, sure, I'd love to hear your story. She said, two years ago, I was a heroin addict and Jesus saved me. Now that stirred both Tim and and me deeply. Tim started weeping. No, he didn't. We were stirred. And she said, I was addicted to heroin for three years. Checked in and out of rehab. I was raised in the church. My my parents lamented and grieved those years. She said, I I tried every kind of rehab you can imagine. There was only one thing that could deliver me from heroin. It was Jesus. Jesus. This woman was bearing witness of Jesus. Why? Because she recognized Jesus was her hope. Jesus is her hope. And that is a deep burden for the Apostle John. When the grace of God has taken hold in your heart, in the person of Jesus, the fruit of that, the the knee-jerk response to that is you will bear witness. And maybe the reason churches aren't seeing the baptisms that we would like to see is that God's people have gotten over grace that has come to us in the Son. When grace is rooted in our hearts, We will bear witness, and notice the goal of bearing witness here. It's not just to bear witness. Notice in the second part of verse seven that all might believe through him. That all might believe. The verb to believe is found nearly one hundred times in the Gospel of John. That's remarkable. Now, it's not just intellectual assent. We're holistic beings. When you believe, it's something you do, not just with your mind, it's something you do with your, your will and your affection, your heart. That's what it means to believe. It's found nine times in 1 John. And so just between those two books that John writes, some 109 times. So it's very important. It's a matter of life for the apostle. Again, those who believe would have eternal life. But as often is the case with extraordinarily gifted people like John the Baptist, who is dealing with ultimate things, some had exaggerated ideas about John the Baptist. And John's going to take a moment to denounce that, Notice in verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John says that John the Baptist relates to Jesus the way the moon relates to the sun. The moon, we saw a full moon this week, But there's no light deriving from the moon. The moon is just reflecting the light of the sun, correct? John the Baptist, nor any other witness, is a source of light. We bear witness to the light. And John can't stress this enough. In fact, chapter 1 gives us some clues as to what John the Baptist was saying about the light. Notice in verse 29 of our chapter. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world? Now I happen to believe that John the Baptist had been reading his Old Testament, and we recognize the Old Testament is preparing us for Redeemer, for the Redeemer. And there had been a question posed all the way back in Genesis 22. as Isaac is up on the stake and Isaac recognizes he's the seed of promise. God had promised Abraham that the seed would be the blessing to the nations. And at that point in time, Isaac is the seed. He's the offspring of Abraham. He recognizes a dead offspring is not going to do good to anyone. He says, Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at his son Isaac and says, God will provide himself the lamb. And so that becomes the question. And it becomes the search of the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? And John the Baptist recognizes that is the search of the Old Testament. And he points at his cousin and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Because he was before me. Keep in mind, John the Baptist was conceived before Jesus. He recognizes this is the eternal word. Then verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And yet with all that, though we recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, Many will refuse to bow the knee to Him. Why? Because of the darkness of their works. That brings us to the third part of this passage, the the life and light rejected. Notice with me in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I love that. Coming into the world. That's the essence of Christmas. Christmas. And notice, he's the true light. I love that. How many times does John use that language? So for instance, in John chapter 6, verse 62, he describes Jesus as the true bread of life. The manna in the wilderness was just a type. It was just a shadow pointing to the true bread of life. In John 15, Jesus describes himself as the true vine. Israel had been planted as as God's vine to bear fruit for the nation's salvation, for God's glory. But they had gone in rebellion. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. Here, He is the true light. That is, He is the fulfillment of the prophetic hopes. The Old Testament hopes. And this true light, it says, enlightens everyone. Gives light to everyone. Now, now in one essence, in one sense, the, the Word gives light to only those who believe. But there is a sense in which there is a general illumination of the entire human race. The entire human race isn't saved, but there's a general illumination because Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world, gives light to everyone. And it is a fact, a New Testament fact, that God, by the agency of this light, has revealed Himself in some way to all people in all times. Romans 1, verse 20. It's what we would call general revelation. We recognize that general revelation is not sufficient to save someone. It is efficient to condemn someone. Because what general revelation reveals is the rebellion of the human heart. And so a person knows that there is a God, that He is powerful, that He is God, and instead of bowing the knee to this God, He rebels and he he serves the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1. Although they knew God as God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And so God gave them over. In other words, general revelation is a test case. You know what a person would do with the gospel? Apart from sovereign grace, they would exchange it for a lie. Look at what they do with His revelation of them in the created order. Or the fact that God has revealed Himself to them with the law that is written on every heart. But if you respond to that light, you'll be saved. If you reject it, if you exchange the light for, the, for a lie, you'll be judged. As a side, because the Son of God enlightens every person, you can trust that when you share the gospel with someone, that person has already been predispositioned to hear that message because they were created for Christ. Colossians 1, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Every person on the planet has been hardwired in such a way that when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they may reject it but they will reject it knowing deep down that they've heard the truth. They've been enlightened. And so be bold. That waitress who came up to us, she was bold. She perhaps could lose her job doing that. I've never had a waitress or waiter evangelize me and I'm sitting at a table. But she could not keep silent. And yet with that, there's going to be some who don't believe. Notice with me in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Three times here, John uses the word world. He wants us to fixate on it for a moment. He says three things about this world. In fact, notice the word was in the world. The world was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. Now this is staggering. The Creator becomes the creation. Think about that. The one who made a perfect world now exposes himself to a world that is stained with imperfection. The one who deserves everyone's love subjects himself to being despised and rejected by sinners. And keep in mind, the fundamental sin in the gospel of John is unbelief. It's unbelief. It's a failure to know and believe in Jesus. And in verse 11, he's going to highlight the tragedy of that by By reminding us of how largely the the Jews, the people of God, the covenantal people, rejected Jesus. Notice in verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Now, had the Son of God come to another nation, uh, the rejection would have been bad enough. But Israel was God's people. He had made a covenant with them. They were his treasured possession, Exodus 19. They were a kingdom of priests, and yet they did not receive him. But John isn't going to leave us with the impression that nobody responded. Indeed, by themselves, verses 10 and 11 would be grievous. But verses 12 and 13 immediately remind us that where the gospel is, there's always hope. That brings us to the final part of this passage. The life and light The saves. Notice with me in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, the majority did not respond, but some did. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? It's much more than just receiving Him as fire insurance. And I've heard evangelists treat Jesus like that's what He is. If if you'll come to Jesus, you can avoid hell. Well, who wants to go to hell? So how many people stream down aisles praying the sinner's prayer to avoid hell? Receiving Jesus is much more than that. When you receive Jesus, you're receiving Him on His terms as He is revealed in the Scriptures. And He is revealed in the Scriptures as Lord and as King. And so when you receive Jesus, you receive Him as Lord, as King, as Master of your life. It's not works salvation, but works flow from that reality. Those who receive Him, notice He gives the right... To become the children of God. In other words, our status changes. Our status is changed from that of a spiritual orphan to that of a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God. This is adoption language. This, we're no longer orphans. In fact, sanctification, you could say, progressive sanctification that begins at that moment, is really coming to terms with what it means that you're adopted. Coming to terms with what it means that you are an heir. That you have the rights of sonship. That's what sanctification is. And and this is such a remarkable truth, this notion of adoption, that John never got over it. Later, at the end of his life, when he was an elderly man, he pins these words in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God? He never got over that reality. And yet, we have responsibility. Our responsibility is to receive Him. It's called conversion. It's what theologians call conversion. Our responsibility is to repent of our sins. Which means we're coming to the king on his terms. And we receive him for who he is as king, as lord, as master. But from another perspective, we must be born again. That's verse 13. Notice. He gave the right to become children of God, those who were born not of blood, Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So verses 12 and 13 strikes the balance between human responsibility, verse 12, and divine sovereignty. We have to maintain that balance. God is sovereign, even in our salvation. And we're responsible to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. as as king, as Lord, as Savior. John starts off here by telling us that the opposite of being born of God spiritually is natural procreation. So he's thinking in terms of natural procreation. And he, he piles on three expressions to describe this natural procreation. Look, when he says, born not of blood. Who do you think he's critiquing there? He's critiquing the Jewish people whose descent from the patriarchs was so vital to their understanding that many of them believed that they were right with God just because they were a part of the the people of Abraham. By the way, we're no different. How many Baptist sons and daughters believe they're right with God because their parents were committed believers? John says, those who are born of God, born again, are not born of blood. nor by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men. Think of this. Why would a sin-loving person, and that was all of us, by the way, that was all of us before our salvation, why would a sin-loving person ever freely choose to submit to a sin-killing Christ? Doesn't make sense. Why would a sin-loving person ever freely choose to submit to a sin-killing Christ who was sent, by the way, to reconcile us to a God who bores us? A God who would ultimately transport us to a place called heaven where we could not enjoy the sin that we so deeply love. Before a holy and righteous triune God and with scores of people who find things wise that we deem as foolish. And so if we're going to be born again, he says it's not by the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. Your will needs to be saved. It has to come by another route. And the last phrase tells us, born but of God. It's all of grace. It does not take away human responsibility. You must receive Him. But we recognize even receiving Him as an act of grace. But it it is human responsibility grounded by the grace of God. In other words, not only was the virgin conception of the Son of God by the Spirit of God a miracle. John says, so is our new birth. indeed, Christmas reminds us that our God of infinite glory looked on glory thieves like us. And that's what we are. We don't naturally live for His glory. We're all engaged in the Babel building construction business. We're all out to make a name for ourselves. It's about us. But this God of glory looks on us glory thieves, not with scorn, Are contempt, but with redeeming love. And because he did, he commissioned his son, the eternal word of God, to leave his rightful glory post to become a servant for us unto death, so that everyone who would receive him could be. Liberated from the shackles of self-glory, which is the doom of humanity. And now, having accomplished salvation for us by the life of God, the light incarnate of God, He unleashes God's glory on us by the Spirit. And now we, as the adopted children of God, are showered with this glory. The glory of forgiveness. The glory of God's love and mercy and wisdom and grace. The glory of His sovereign rule. The glory of His presence. The glory of His promises. And the outpouring of that glory on us in the Son and by the Spirit progressively transforms our hearts. That's the key right there. It progressively transforms our hearts from our puny commitments to our own glory to once again live in pursuit for which we were created. The glory of God in the person of His Son. That is the story of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we, by opening these pages in John, have entered a glory story, but not our glory. The glory of the eternal Word of God, the life and light incarnate. A word to come to crash in on our ignorance. Life to come to resurrect our spiritual death and light to inform our darkness. And Lord, I pray every Christian here would be so stirred by that, that we, like John the Baptist, would be witnesses of that reality. Give us opportunity to do that this week. And Father, if there's any here today that have never been redeemed by the Son, may they cling to this promise, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name. You give the right to become children of God. May they receive the Lord Jesus today and be saved. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen.